Um, I remember when we uh, had our second child. Now, uh, we were planting a church in San Diego when we were having our second child. And, uh, and it was a crazy time. But I remember one of the things that we felt confident in uh, was we've done this before. And, and, and we actually, uh, according to us, we felt like the first one went pretty well. Now, other people may have said differently, but to us, we felt like it went well. And, um, and, and, and from sleeping and all those things. So in our mindset, right, in our conversations leading up to the second, it was, let's, let's just do the same thing. All right? We just reproduce what we did and it will reproduce the results that we just had. Um, what we learned was that that is clearly not true. And our, our second child humbled us in ways that we never even knew we could be humbled. Um, and and there were, uh, even from when he was born, I mean, I, when he was born, our first, our first child had like no hair. Our second child, it was like a Chia pet, just, just hair everywhere. I even looked at the doctor, I was like, and he was like, no, it's normal, it's fine. And, uh, <laughs> and that hair just, just kept growing, like Samson. But uh, anyway, so he was, he was, he was just different. And, and as we were raising him, nothing that worked for the first worked for the second. And, and I remember us over and over again, like saying, this is just not the way it's supposed to be, right? It shouldn't be like this. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And so this should be the outcome. This is how we should be feeling. And I think for probably all of us in this room or watching, we've, we've experienced that almost like a, a letdown, right? Almost like, a, well, why is it just not doing what it's supposed to? Right? And, and, and this is in a lot of different areas of our lives, right? Like you get, you get this job and, and you make a lot of assumptions when you get a new job. And, and all of a sudden, as you get, let's say it's your dream job, oftentimes you find yourself saying, man, it's just not supposed to be this way. You know, and we do this in, in life in so many things. If I just get this, if this just happens, if I get married, if like, and, and we just reproduce that, right? Into all these different areas of our life that, that are a focus. And, and we just go, man, at the end of the day, why is it not measuring up with my expectations of how it should be? And so here we are left in that, in that state that, that, that just keeps uh, following us all throughout uh, life. And, and what's so uh, helpful is that the Bible actually reveals to us what we were made for, as well as why things aren't the way they should be. See, there's, there's, a, there, there's a relationship there's a home, there's a, uh, a, a purpose that you and I were made for that Adam and Eve lost for us. See, it was their rebellion uh, against God that, that really ushered in this restlessness that we feel, isn't it? Because nothing was the same since then. And, and what we read in Scripture is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says that, that God has actually placed eternity in the heart of humanity. 
Okay, so, so what that means for us is he's put this eternity in our hearts. In other words, it's a longing for eternity. It's, it's a longing for uh, completeness. It's, it's a longing for the perfect fulfillment, isn't it? And so that is within us, uh, all throughout life is this longing for something more, something greater, and, and it was built within us uh, from the very beginning. And you guys, what you need to know is that's why people fear death. You guys, fear uh, death is actually unnatural. Right? So, so there's this longing uh, in our hearts for eternity, right? For fulfillment. And death is not that. And, and, and Adam and Eve, they, they had that, right? And so we're born with this way of thinking, this mentality. And yet what we do see in Scripture is that what God has planted in our hearts is going to be completely satisfied in the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible promises that. It's, it's one of the most wonderful promises in all of Scripture that those who have placed their faith and their hope uh, and their trust alone in Jesus, they're going to spend eternity with God in a place called heaven. Yeah, there you go. And, <laughs> and, and Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is, if you're a Jesus follower in this room, this is our future home. This is our future hope that we live every day with, and it has to make a difference in how we're living today. See, one of the things that we see when we study history is those who are the most heavenly-minded are the most effective on earth. Uh, that's why in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, uh, we're encouraged. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is uh, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Okay, so that's what we're encouraged to do is, is, is listen, heaven is, is coming. It is a reality if you're a Jesus follower. That's what you set your minds on as you eagerly await it. Um, I love how C.S. Lewis beautifully writes this, and pretty much beautifully writes everything, but he says this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. really challenges us, right? How does my thinking, my view of heaven impact and affect me right now, today? 
And, and as we get into Revelation chapter 21 here, we, we need to understand that what's just happened, well, judgment has just happened for all that is evil, right? All uh, Satan, he's been literally, he's been judged finally. He's been condemned. He's been sent to the eternal lake of fire. Those who have continually rejected Jesus and said, no, I don't want that. I don't want you. I don't want that life. I, 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 don't, want, I, don't, I don't need you. They have been sent there as well. And so we've just looked at this judgment as, as they've all stood before the Lord at what is called the great white throne judgment. And, and at some point, we don't specifically know where, we know that everybody actually stands before God. So, so even people that are Jesus followers who have received him, are, they're also going to stand before God. We see that uh, throughout scripture. It talks about everyone's going to stand before him. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so we're all gonna stand before God. Now, here's what you need to know. If you are a Jesus follower, because sometimes when I, when I talk to people, they're like, oh, we're gonna stand before God. He's gonna know, isn't he? And they're like, oh, can we skip that part? And I'm like, you're misunderstanding the whole purpose behind that. We get to stand before him because he wants to reward us. What you need to know is if you're a Jesus follower, you received forgiveness and forgiveness wasn't temporary. It wasn't conditional. Uh, forgiveness is this gift through the finished work of Jesus on the cross so that now you have the opportunity every time you sin to ask for forgiveness, to repent. And he removes that sin. So that is no longer a label. That is no longer uh, what defines you. And so you're not standing before God and having this highlight reel of all your failures. No, you are forgiven. And so you have the opportunity, like, like if you choose to hold on to that sin, well, that's, that's a you problem. But, but this is an opportunity for, for God to literally reward you for what you have done. And so at, at, at some point, we all stand before him. And then what we see is in chapter 21, verse one, it says this. It says, then I saw, this is John speaking, the writer. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away." Okay, so, so John sees, and, and, and once again, John is going to do his best to describe what he's seen. And he's going to use a lot of words, like, like he's going to say like. It's like this or like that, because um, as, as accurate as, as, as what he is describing as it, as it is, it's also so inadequate because he doesn't have the words in the human language to describe what he's seen. That's how incredible heaven is. 
And so he sees, he says, he says, I see this new heaven and a new earth. So what do we need to know? First of all, the first heaven and earth had passed uh, away. And we see this language being used from Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. Uh, and Isaiah 65, 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Okay? Now, Here's what we need to understand because there is some tension here because multiple verses seem to paint a little different picture here, right? Um, so the promise here isn't necessarily that God's going to uh, make out of nothing all of these new things, but that all of creation that's been impacted by the curse, all of that is going to be restored. It's going to be renewed and we're going to see it resurrected. And so in Romans chapter 8, uh, we see it point to this renovation of what was old. But then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, we see him recreate a new creation. And so in some incredible way, both of those things are happening. And ultimately, it's good. Like, it's good. And what we need to see here is that first earth a world that was impacted by the curse. We see it everywhere. That impact is no more. In fact, in Romans 8, 21, it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so, so we see uh, all of creation has been groaning and crying out for the Redeemer to come and to make everything new, to make everything right. And so he shows up. And one of the things we also need to understand is throughout Scripture, heaven is spoken of like 500 times, and it's used in three different uh, ways. Uh, we see it used in regards to the earth's atmosphere, right? Like the sky, uh, the clouds. Uh, we see heaven used describing the universe, which would be the planets, the sun. But then we also see heaven used, and it's called the third heaven. We see it used to describe the dwelling place uh, of God where um, the good angels and uh, those who have placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus will dwell with him forever. And that's what it's talking about here. Now, what we also need to understand, though, is um, believers who pass away, they do still go immediately into the presence of God. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, it says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So that, that's a great thing. But, but where that is, is this intermediate place of blessing. It's not our final heavenly home that John is getting to see. And Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it describes our eternal home, this, this third heaven. And he, and he says that the sea, uh, he, he alludes to the sea. The sea is no more. Now, remember, the sea throughout Scripture is, is portrayed as this place of chaos, uh, of, of evil and, and, and danger. And so when he's saying the sea is no more, he's saying that nothing evil is ever going to arise again in the new creation. But then he sees what, what you and I can't even begin to comprehend. He sees the descent of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I mean, I just want you to just like, like, like literally descending, he sees the new 
Jerusalem. And he describes it, once again, using this imagery of marriage. He describes it, he says, she comes down prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. See, see, once again, uh, Scripture tells us that one day God's going to present the, the, the church, all of those who are believers in Jesus, uh, you and I, he's going to present us as a bride. We are alluded to in Scripture as the bride of Christ, and he's going to present us as a bride to his son. And we see that here in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And that is the image. That is what John is seeing as the new Jerusalem comes down. Finally, the bride and the bridegroom will be home together again, and she is both a place and a people we see here. And then John hears a loud voice from the throne of God announcing that God's dwelling place, or it may say tabernacle in your translation, God's dwelling place is now with man. God will forever dwell with his redeemed people. It says God himself will be with them. He will be their God. You guys, he is going to be with us for all of eternity. He's going to be with us. He's going to be in our midst. And this is what God has always wanted. I want you to just pause for a minute and just think about how crazy that is. God desires to dwell with you and me for all of eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I sit there and, 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 I, and I just start thinking like, really? He wants to dwell with me for all of eternity. Because honestly, I, I go, man, I'm, I'm kind of a difficult person like, to deal with. Like, there's so many times I look at my wife and I go, God bless you. Like, I, don't, I don't know how you do it till death do us part, right? Like, I, I know that I can be difficult. And I would venture to say you in this room know that you can be difficult. You know that you have struggles. You seem to fall right back into the very things you thought you'd already figured out, right? There's patterns in your life and they're destructive patterns and you, and you, and you go back to them and, and you're just very aware that, that, that there are issues that you bring into this relationship and they're not good, right? And, and to be honest, the ones in the room that go, well, I'm, a, I'm all right, you're probably the ones that are the worst, right? Um, because I know I, I am very aware that I am difficult. And what I see here, you guys, and this just blows my mind, because one thing you need to know when you read this, God is not in need. He is self-sufficient in every way. He is not lonely, and I just somehow complete him. Like, like no, that is not what it's saying here, okay? Uh, you guys need to understand what you're reading here is a perfect and holy, self-sufficient God who knows all of your flaws, your failures, 
loves you so much that, that, that he knew the greatest joy, the greatest love that you could ever experience would ultimately be with him. And so he made a way and he says, I love you so much. I am choosing to dwell with you in your midst for all of eternity. Wow. We'll finally have the intimacy with him who we've desired to have, but it just seems like, man, we, every time we, we feel like we figured it out or we're close to him, something happens that causes us to drift or something captures our heart away. And it just seems like it's just, we can't maintain it. We can't keep it. Um, and he says, you are going to have me for all of eternity. And you guys, what you need to see, because I think for some of us still, the face of the Father is not this face of joy. And what you need to know is there is a face beaming with joy, welcoming you into his forever presence. He welcomes us home so that the eternal marriage can begin. He has treasures he's waited to give you. There's a table that's been set for you. That's how much he loves you. And, and, and on top of all of that, you guys, we get to the, the very next verse and, and we just, it, it just breaks you, right? Because he says, not only am I gonna make my dwelling among you and be with you and put my tabernacle in your midst, but he says, I am also going to wipe away every tear. Every tear I'm wiping away. Uh, death, death is no longer a thing. I'm taking it away. Grief, you will have no grief. There will be no, no crying. There will be no pain with me for all of eternity. All of these horrible consequences and effects of sin, they're gone forever. You guys, and I don't sit here and pretend to belittle the journey that you've been on. There are so many of you that, that have just gone through times of just, uh, just weeping, just weeping, just crying out to God because of, 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 of a situation, a challenge, physical pain, emotional, mental pain. Sometimes you, you felt like you understood what was happening. Others, you didn't, but you were just mourning before the Lord or, or it was with a kid, a child, uh, or a loved one. And, and, and you're, just, you're just broken over what is going on in their life or maybe it's in your own. And, and, and the loss, death, and, and the fear that so many of us carry when it comes to that and, and all those things and, and just the pain. So many, even in this room and watching online, you are carrying pain. Some of you, it is, it is physical, and it won't go away. Some of you, it's emotional, it's mental, it, it, there's trauma, and, and, and you've tried everything, and you're just like, why won't it let up? You guys, what you need to know right now is, one, God sees you, and he says, forever with me, in eternity, in the new heavens, and the new earth, I will wipe away every tear. There, you will not be in heaven. Sometimes we, we imagine I'm gonna be in heaven sitting there with all these regrets. And I'm gonna be thinking about that person, that situation, and God says, no, you won't. But, but there's this situation of this, and, and he's like, no, that is all gone. I am wiping it all away forever. And so you guys, I, I don't belittle the pain, the challenges, the tears, but I tell you, there is an end in sight. There really is. 
And we're reminded of that in Revelation. So remember in Revelation, he's pleading, keep going. You can do it. Hold tight. Be an overcomer. Hold strong to the faith. You're in Revelation 7, 17, he says, I'm going to wipe away those tears. We see him speaking Old Testament, Isaiah 25. He talks about, I'm going to remove all the tears, all the sorrows. I'm going to dwell with you. And so you guys hear that, listen to that, receive that. What we know about life is this. It happens so quickly. In fact, it's described as but a vapor. And you guys, uh, I've I've sat with many people who have been dying and they knew they were dying and they were there on their deathbed. And that is a universal truth that I hear over and over again as it just went too quick. Then we see in verse five, it says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the last or of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed and on the east, uh, three gates and on the north, three gates and on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Okay, so, so not only is, is God saying, hey, um, I'm going I'm to wipe away all of those uh, sinful effects of, of, of the fall, and not only, and so uh, fear, death, pain, uh, all of that's going away, but I love what he says here. That's just the beginning. I am making all things new. Making it all. He reaffirms that in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. He talks about, I am doing away with that. I'm burning it up. And all things are going to become new. In fact, he says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What an encouragement. And John is, John's told, hey, write Write this because these words are faithful and true. The Alpha and Omega says it is done. And, 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 and then he uses incredible imagery once again. He says, if you're thirsty, come to Christ and be satisfied forever. And it costs you nothing. What a beautiful picture of God's grace, isn't it? Right, Come to me, come and, and receive me as your Lord and Savior and, and experience salvation. Uh, and, and guess what? It costs you nothing. That's the picture of his grace. 
And then he goes from this marriage imagery to the imagery of a father and a son as he captures the inheritance that will be ours through Jesus. He says, for all of eternity, we will be the adopted heirs of a, of a perfect heavenly father. Once again, we see all of these treasures stored up for, for those of us who will love and serve him. And, and, and he's preparing this for you and I, adopted as sons and daughters into his forever family. But he, but he tells us, he warns us in verse eight, he says, tragically, there's gonna be those who never put their faith and hope and trust in me, and they're going to have a different destiny, a destiny that we looked at last week. And so then he provides uh, just a list of, of, of eight sins that characterize the lives of those who are going to spend eternity separated from God. And what you need to know there, because when you read that list, you're gonna go, well, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. Am I in that? These are individuals who, because they have not received forgiveness, that sin still defines who they are, right? What do we see in Revelation? You've been given a new name. You have a new identity through the finished work on the cross. But guys, if you don't receive him as Lord and Savior, what defines you, right? It, it, it's those very things. And so this isn't for those of us that have some of these struggles in this area uh, or, or it's part of our past. Uh, no, this is, this is people who have, who have rejected the forgiveness of Jesus. And because of that, they're still bearing the weight of that. And they will be spending eternity separated from a perfect and holy God. But then we see one of the seven angels who had the, held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. He comes and he speaks to John, telling him to come so that he can show him the bride. Now, guys, once again, this is just insane how John is carried up by the Spirit to this great and high mountain, it says. So he's brought up to this mountaintop where, where he sees the holy city, once again, Jerusalem, coming down. And, and, and he's going to detail uh, the, the glory of this as best he can. In fact, you're going to see glory mentioned over and over again because he's just trying to figure out how to do justice with what he's experiencing and what he's seeing, you guys. Um, I, I think of some of those moments in my own life. And uh, for some of us, we've been in an environment. And oftentimes, it's something maybe in nature that we experience or we go see. And, and I don't know about you, but every time we tried to capture that moment, right, with a camera, whether it's like you're by yourself and you're like, or, or it's like, hey, will you take a picture of my family uh, uh, as we stand over here? Can you take a picture? Um, that has never, it's never done it justice, right? I think of some of the most amazing experiences where I'm just like, wow, this is incredible. Uh, we were asked to, to, I was asked to do this wedding uh, and, and they're like, well, we're getting married. It's, it's going to be a destination wedding. And I've come to find out that you always have to ask, what does that mean to you when you agree to do a destination wedding? Um, but they said, uh, it's going to be in Yosemite. And I went, okay, I can do that one. They're like, we haven't given you a date. And I said, no, I, I can do that one. Uh, <laughs> and, and I hadn't been to Yosemite. And, and, and so my, my wife and I, I, I remember it was just us. And we drive in and there's this section of Yosemite when you drive in. And it is like, it's like you just get hit. And you're overwhelmed with what you're seeing. And I remember we just parked the car and we're just like. And I don't know how many hundreds of pictures we took in Yosemite. And I cannot reproduce that. 
and, and I can describe it and all of that, you guys. And, and guys, that's, that's cursed creation there. Like, that's, that's this compared to what he's seen. And he's trying to describe the magnitude and the glory of the new city, uh, the, the heavenly dwelling place for all of the saints of all time. And he's seeing it and he just starts throwing out whatever language he can find. And so he's using all of these beautiful, uh, these rocks, these stones, right? And, and, and so he's like, it's radiance from the glory of God. It's like this precious stone, like a jasper stone as bright as, as crystal, which is like a translucent uh, stone. And it's associated, all of it, with the light and the glory of God shining on it. He said, man, they have this, this great, massive, high wall. And, and this wall, it has 12 gates uh, and a sign of, of incredible access. There are three uh, gates uh, going each direction. And, and, and all 12 gates, there's 12 angels. And each of the gates contains all of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons, we read here. And what we just see is God reaffirming his covenant and to fulfill his promises to Abraham way back in the Old Testament. And then verse 14, it, it further describes the wall by noting it has 12 foundations on which are written the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles, which in Ephesians chapter two, he says, that is you, Paul says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So we see this incredible imagery here. And then he just keeps going, just trying to describe it. In verse 15, he says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadium. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the second carnelian, the seventh chrysolite. I just hear my grandpa in heaven who collected rocks just going, that's not how you say that. Um, <laughs> the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, uh, the tenth chrysophyte. Praise the eleventh. Yeah, yeah, see, Grandpa. The the eleventh, Jacinth. The twelfth. You guess it. A A. We'll call it A. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I mean, he's just. And and, and what's crazy here is is like. This is overwhelming. And then all of a sudden there's an angel who's got this gold measuring rod. It's like, I'm going to measure. <sighs> right? And, and, and so all of a sudden, and we, he's just trying to describe what he's seeing. He's saying all these 12s, all this perfection. And what you see, though, is by the measurements is this is laid out like a cube, the city, which reflects what? The holy of holies. We see the same description in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 2 Chronicles chapter 3 describing the holy of holies. This is the place of Christ's divine presence. And, and we see this, this 12 
thousand uh, stadia uh, being described, and and it's likely symbolic um, and signifying perfection, but it's also signifying and showing us how large this city is. I mean, this, this city is, is not only the most beautiful thing he's ever seen, but it is overwhelmingly large. And so let's just have fun for a minute and let's just go, hey, if this is literal, some people say it is absolutely literal, 12,000 stadia, you know what that measures out to? Almost 1,400 miles. Okay, another word, that really didn't have the effect I was hoping it would. <laughs> You're like, uh, uh, uh. Um, but... <laughs> Okay, 1,400 miles in every direction. Still nothing. All right. (laughs) Canada to Mexico. (laughs) Let's pray. Let's pray. (laughs) Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, now, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Guys. This is just the city. Like, this is what it just blows me away. Like, however literally you want to take it, like, and, and we're like, oh, is there going to be enough room? Like, yes, yes. You are not going to be in a high-rise condo, like, oh, it's also my bathroom, and it's my sink, it's my kitchen. Like, like no, you are like, you are, you, you're living it up, okay? I mean, think about what he's describing here. The space, like, some of you out in the country, you're like, I don't want that. Like, you're good. You're set, okay? Like in every single way as he is describing uh, this. And, and I just keep going back. This is just the city. Like he's just describing the new Jerusalem. This wall built of jasper, the city is described as being pure gold, clear like glass. The foundation of the city wall, it's adorned with every kind of precious stone. Uh, there are 12 total, which correspond roughly to the gems on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. And we see the 12 gates. There, the, each gate, which is insanely massive, is, is one pearl. Like each gate is a specific pearl and the streets are pure gold, like transparent glass, the street of gold. And then in verse 22, it says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its, and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John looks and and as he's looking and, and he's blown away by all that he's seen, but he's like, man, Uh, It's missing something. Where's the temple? I mean, where's the temple? And then he sees it. And in amazement, he goes, "There there is no temple. The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That's the temple. The temple is God's very presence. Believers now have God's very presence presence. And then he just says, the city, it doesn't need the sun. It doesn't need a moon, nothing to shine on it because, and once again, he goes back to God's glory, which you and I are shortchanging a lot today. 
God's glory illuminates it. And its lamp is the lamb. The nations are going to come in. All these different cultures, ethnicities are all coming through. And they're just being magnified by the, by the light uh, coming from the lamb. And, and, and we're seeing this incredible imagery as they're going in. The gates are open right? There, there's no threats or anything, and people are coming and going. There is nothing evil. There is nothing, it says, undetestable or unclean. Nothing like that is going to enter this uh, city, and, and it's just, it's never going to be nighttime. Now, some of you love your sleep. You need to hear me. Your body is perfect now, okay? In other words, tiredness, sleep, nope. Your body's perfect at this point. And, and it's in its glorified state, right? And, and, and so you're, you're, you're sitting there and, and, and he says uh, that, that only those written in the Lamb's book of life are allowed in. And then in chapter 22, verse one, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Man. There's this river, the river, and, and, and this river, once again, we're brought back to Genesis chapter two. And then in Ezekiel, the prophet, in Ezekiel 47, he describes this incredible scene uh, so accurately. We see this river of the living water, a river sparkling, it says, like crystal. He's just trying to describe it. Uh, it's a glorious and life-giving water, and it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it flows right down the middle of the broad street of the city. And on both sides of this river is the tree of life, the heavenly counterpart to the earthly tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And, and, and it too is just this picture of not only eternal life, but, but abundant life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit every month. Uh, in fact, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, it says. Uh, in, in Ezekiel 47, 12, uh, the prophet hundreds of years earlier says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. We are perfectly cared for and nourished just as Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. We have the fruit. Uh, we, we are going to uh, literally experience what it looks like to see uh, the curse of sin vanquished forever. Re Genesis chapter three is completely, it's reversed, it's undone forever. And we're going to uh, worship him uh, in that, you guys. And, and as you just think about how amazing that is, how we're gonna be, nourished and we're going to be thrived uh, with the tree of life that's going to be providing fruit for us uh, all throughout eternity every month different kinds uh, of fruit that we're to take part in and the water it's the same water that Jesus is like I, I offer water that you're never going to thirst again if you drink it 
It's different. And so we see that, and, and some of you are like, so I'll be able to eat in heaven? Well, I heard that, yeah. <laughs> Guys, we are going to be worshiping him, and, and it speaks to our worship here in regards to service. We are going to be worshiping through how we serve him. I, sometimes I listen to people, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to kind of be bored in heaven. And I'm like, you have never studied heaven. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, we, like, like uh, you look at Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve weren't sitting in the garden going, hey, what do you want to do now? Like, you know, um, like, no. They had incredible roles and tasks and purpose. They were fulfilled in their work in the best of ways, the way God had designed it and the way God has designed all of us, except it'll be in a perfect state and your body is perfect and all of it is going to be worshipful. So we're all going to be doing our things and creating and all of it and working for the glory of God. It is all going to be about worshiping uh, him. And I love how the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy. You guys, you're, you're not going to be lacking joy. You're not going to be bored. You're not, like, like literally, every, it is everything in its most perfect, glorified uh, state. And he says, your name is going to be on, uh, or my name is going to be on your foreheads. You are going to enjoy perfect relationship with me. And then we see that in the new holy of holies, the entire priestly community, you and I, are going to experience the greatest blessing of all. It says they will see the face of God. They will see the face of God. You guys, this is what the psalmist gave us the words to pray for in Psalm 27, 4, when it says this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what we're to pray for. It goes back to that old priestly blessing, that prayer to the Lord of make his face shine on you, turn his face towards you, and it finds its ultimate fulfillment here. And in this new Jerusalem, God, it says, is ever present. And once again, John's like, oh, look, I think you missed it. Let me describe his glory again. Like, like you, you, you don't need light. Like, like nights, night doesn't exist any longer, and, and we're going to reign with him forever. Now, there's two questions we have to ask you guys as we just think about what he's just described for us. What well, we have to look forward to. And the first, well, the first thing you just need to know is this. If you are a Jesus follower, and I heard one theologian say it, and I love it. If you're a Jesus follower, Death is a comma, it's not a period, right? Like there is, there is so much more to come. And so you have that, you, you live with this living hope now every day, knowing that heaven is your home. This is not your home. That heaven is your eternal home. And so that should change some things. And so the first thing we have to ask in this room or online is if, if you've never made a decision to receive him as your Lord and Savior, this is not your eternal home. And so you have to ask yourself this, how do I get there? Right? One, do you want to be there? And second, how do you get there? And guys, the invitation is open. 
In spite of your weaknesses, your failures, your mistakes, and your doubt, he says, if you will place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone as your Lord and Savior, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he says by the authority of Scripture, you will be saved. Okay, and, and the thing I love about that is, yeah, we're talking about heaven and you can get so caught up in what's to come, but you guys, the reality of salvation in my life, it is an everyday experience. It is, it is Jesus with me every single day. It is purpose. It is his presence. It is his drawing. It is his leading. It is his power uh, in your life daily. Even though you're not uh, in the new heavens and the new earth with, our, with, with God, you are still experiencing Jesus every day, every day. And so if you've never made a decision to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and you go, man, I believe, I, I know that my sin separates me from a perfect and holy God, and I acknowledge what Jesus did on the cross for me so that I no longer have to carry that weight of sin. And, if, and, and I can believe in the resurrection and the power over sin and death that he won for me and I receive him. If you can say that, you will be saved. And this will be your eternal destiny. But the second question I have for those of us in the room is, how do your thoughts of heaven impact your life right now? We have to ultimately ask that question. Do I ever think about heaven? Am I, is that ever on my mind, my eternal home? If it's not, you're probably finding a loss of motivation and effectiveness here right now. And God says, this is the revelation. This is the revelation. I'm revealing to you what's to come. And it's to inspire you to live with urgency today. And so don't disconnect. Don't look at it as this escape option where just take me home, God. I don't want to deal with it. Know and understand that God has called you and placed you here for such a time as this, and he has incredible purpose with your life. And so our thought, our conversation, our words that we've read on heaven this morning, it needs to motivate me to live differently today. Amen? Let's pray.